Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Unsafe Space. Today, I'd like to have an important and difficult conversation with you about a sensitive topic. Shortly after the mass shooting at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, I wrote an extensive article about the motivations behind the attack and how they relate to the ongoing culture war in the West. This podcast is an audio version of that article. It's pretty dense, so strap yourself in, and it takes about 49 minutes to listen to. But if you care about Western civilization, it's critically important. Thanks for listening. Please visit unsafespace.com to support our work. Christchurch and Western Culture Note to the reader. My primary motivation for writing about this subject is to help steer people who might be susceptible to the Christchurch shooter's ideas away from the intellectual errors that led him to murder. Whether his manifesto is widely distributed or not, the ideas behind it are easily available on the internet and will remain that way, despite the fantasies of media and government censors. Left unexamined or casually dismissed as white supremacy without further analysis, I fear that others may heed the shooter's calls to continue fighting the war he declared. I therefore attempted to treat this topic with as much seriousness as I could without spending an unrealistic amount of time writing an entire book. The result is a rather long article that I broke into three parts for convenience. Part one focuses on defining culture since the shooter views himself as a defender of Western culture. Part two outlines the shooter's core argument and identifies two critical errors in his thinking, errors that I hope others can avoid making. Part three distinguishes between the shooter's perceived threat to Western civilization and any actual threats to Western civilization. I do not intend for this to be the conclusion of a discussion about the problems that plague the West, but I optimistically hope that it can be the beginning. It should go without saying that I consider the victims of the Christchurch attack to be innocent, and my heart goes out to their families. Part 1. Culture In the aftermath of the massacre in Christchurch, an attack specifically intended to escalate cultural balkanization in the West, there is one thing that both the left and right, with a few exceptions, seem to agree upon. We're not supposed to read the shooter's manifesto. New Zealand has now made it illegal to possess or distribute the document, including by linking to it, and the mainstream media and major tech companies in the United States have made every effort to eradicate it from the internet. Even Ben Shapiro told his audience on Twitter, Do not share the shooter's name. Do not share the shooter's evil video. Do not share the shooter's evil manifesto. Mass killers desire fame and attention. Starve them of it. At first glance, Shapiro's argument makes sense. As a society, we don't want to reward mass shooters with fame. I'm looking at you, Netflix. Because doing so may incentivize other would-be killers. Shapiro is right about that, which is why I'm not using the shooter's name in this article, even though in this specific case, I don't think fame is what the shooter was after. 
On the other hand, the only reason I have any clue about the shooter's thought process and motive is because I defied preachy injunctions from media pundits, warning me to avoid looking at any source material firsthand. I actually read the manifesto, which, by the way, doesn't include the shooter's name at all. I read it because I care about the future of Western civilization. And if we hope to prevent it from fracturing into a 21st century version of tribal warfare, then we desperately need to understand the motivation behind attacks like this. Of course, those with weaker constitutions would suggest that we simply scream racist or white supremacist or alt-right, and then proceed to pat ourselves on our backs as if we'd just done something courageous or even remotely prophylactic. But the unfortunate truth is that a tweet-length analysis of such a horrific and impactful event does almost nothing to help us identify the intellectual missteps that may have led someone down such a morally reprehensible path, and it does even less to dissuade the next would-be shooter. To actually have a chance at preventing more needless death, we need to take a serious and careful look at the intellectual frenzy that resulted in the cold-blooded murder of 50 people. We can't do that if we don't even bother to read the shooter's own explanation. What's the alternative? To hand over the responsibility of reading and analyzing the shooter's motives to a few elite media types, many of whom have questionable track records of both honesty and intellectual vigor? Should we simply sit back and let Oliver Darcy or Sean Hannity, or the New Zealand government for that matter, tell us what to think? That's a hard pass for me. And if you're an independent thinker, it should be a hard pass for you, too. Below are my thoughts on the manifesto and how I think it fits in contextually with the swelling culture war in the West. If you're in New Zealand and would like to read it for yourself, it is preserved for all eternity on the Bitcoin Satoshi's Vision BSV blockchain. Have at it. Discreetly. The title of the shooter's 74-page hastily constructed screed is The Great Replacement, which is a reference to what he perceives as an existential threat to Western society. Despite the subtitle, Towards a New Society We March Ever Forwards, the shooter's ideology is less about moving toward any particular utopian vision of the world and more about reacting to the changing cultural landscape of Western countries, including Australia, New Zealand, much of Europe, and the United States. He repeatedly bemoans attacks on my culture, seeing mass immigration as an attempt to, quote, destroy our cultures, and specifically cites the loss of culture in France as motivation for his violent response. Like a growing number of the elusively identifiable alt-right, the shooter exhibits a vague but accurate sense that Western civilization is under some form of ideological attack, but then fails to correctly identify the essential elements of the West that make it worth defending in the first place. To unpack this error, it's necessary to articulate what we mean when we use the term culture, and how that relates to the essential characteristics of Western civilization that have allowed us to prosper and thrive. Look up the word culture in any modern dictionary, and you'll find a definition that sounds something like this. Culture. Noun. The quality of a society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent in the arts, letters, manners, 
scholarly pursuits, etc. Unfortunately, this definition is inadequate in that it both fails to capture the pervasiveness and impact of a society's culture and does a poor job of tying the concept to any considerations outside the field of aesthetics. When we use the term culture, we mean much more than a set of aesthetic sensibilities. Culture is better described as a loose societal consensus on 1. basic philosophic premises and 2. evolved cooperative strategies. Basic philosophic premises Traditionally, there are at least six major branches of philosophy. Metaphysics, epistemology, logic, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. There are variants to this organization. For example, some philosophers consider ethics, aesthetics, and politics to be subcategories of a branch called axiology. But for the purposes of this discussion, these six will suffice. That a shared culture presupposes shared understanding of basic philosophical tenets seems almost too obvious to mention, but let's quickly consider how the major branches help define a culture. For brevity, I will assume that politics is a sub-branch of ethics, and I will treat logic and epistemology together as a single category, thereby limiting the discussion to four areas, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and aesthetics. Metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that concerns itself with the question of the nature of the universe as a whole. Imagine a group of people who earnestly believed they were perpetually stuck in a dream. Everything around them was a product of their own imagination, and nothing, and no one, actually existed. How might they behave? Now imagine another group of people who were completely certain that they were awake and living in the material world and that every action they took affected people and things around them in a permanent, irreversible way. How might they behave? Would we describe these two groups as having a shared culture? Metaphysical assumptions are so fundamental to how we think and behave that a society with large groups of people holding diametrically opposed metaphysical beliefs simply cannot be said to share a unified culture. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy devoted to the theory of knowledge. In other words, how do we know what we know? Our epistemological assumptions determine what we consider to be knowledge. Logic is fundamentally concerned with how that knowledge is systematically integrated in a non-contradictory fashion. For example, if a farmer's crop fails, does he turn to science to solve the problem by studying the soil, measuring water consumption, checking for disease or pests? Or does he accept what the local shaman tells him, which is that next year he must make a larger sacrifice to appease the corn god? When someone is accused of a crime, is guilt or innocence determined by praying to Zeus and checking in with your feelings, or by rationally examining evidence? Although not everyone in a society must always be in full epistemological harmony at all times, To have a shared culture, there must be a general agreement on what constitutes valid epistemological methods for most materially relevant situations. Ethics is the branch of philosophy focused on discovering how humans should act. A mutually shared sense of ethical principles determines what a culture considers moral, what it considers immoral, and what it considers amoral. 
To use some particularly charged examples, in order to share a culture, people need to share the same answers to questions such as, do men and women deserve equal respect and treatment? Is the initiation of the use of force against your neighbor justified if she does not share your religious beliefs? Does every individual have rights that arise from his or her nature as a human being? Or can individuals be sacrificed to groups or to a god? Are people of another race deserving of equal respect? Or are they subhuman? The answer to many of these questions may differ between individuals in a particular culture, but the more these answers differ, the more fractured the culture becomes. Often, a culture's shared ethical values are reflected in political choices and become codified into law. A culture's shared ethical tenets can also change over time, sometimes becoming more unified. Examples, women's suffrage is no longer a controversial topic and gay marriage is becoming less controversial. And sometimes becoming more balkanized. Examples, the rights of self-defense and free speech are no longer universally held beliefs in the West. For many people, their ethics are derived from religious beliefs. Islam, Christianity, Scientology, Zoroastrianism, and Satanism are not ethically congruent. Finally, aesthetics is the study of the notions of beauty and art, which is the only branch of philosophy that writers of dictionaries seem to think matters when we use the word culture. This belittles the concept of culture and implies that culture lacks moral relevance. I've argued elsewhere that aesthetics should be moved out of the dominion of philosophy and that it should be treated as its own separate discipline, more closely related to psychology. Regardless, shared aesthetics are the most obviously visible aspect of a unified culture. Art, music, fashion, theater, etc. These are generally the facets of culture we most hope to experience when we travel to other parts of the globe. They are novel, sensorial, and largely innocuous. Evolved Cooperative Strategies Apart from a basic set of shared philosophic premises, people from the same culture have evolved a set of arbitrary but functional standard practices for social interaction. This is why the dictionary definition of culture includes the word manners. Misalignment of manners between people living together can lead to mistaken offense, unintentional affronts, and even physical conflict. A quick internet search will reveal all sorts of gestures and habits that are considered polite or neutral in one culture, but greatly offensive in another. More importantly, a culture's cooperative strategies include more subtle behavior and function as a kind of shortcut to detecting potentially dangerous anomalies in people around you. Is that man standing too close? Is he responding to social cues in an expected manner? If not, those may be signs that he's a threat, and your subconscious may give you a vague sense of uneasiness in his presence. This is a completely practical, helpful, and efficient reaction when living in a unified culture. Security expert Gavin De Becker writes about the importance of heeding these warnings in his book, Gift of Fear. But if the man in question is from a different culture, 
What your subconscious interprets as behavioral red flags may in fact be benevolent adherence to an alternate set of cultural norms governing social interaction. It may be hard to determine this without risking further engagement with the man, and it's definitely difficult to override your deep-seated emotional response mechanism. Aside from philosophic differences between cultures, differing cooperative strategies may be a contributory factor to the increased social isolation and general distrust observed in more diverse communities. In his paper, E Pluribus Unum, Diversity and Community in the 21st Century, Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam reluctantly concluded that in the short term, quote, immigration and ethnic diversity tends to reduce social solidarity and social capital. New evidence from the U.S. suggests that in ethnically diverse neighborhoods, residents of all races tends to hunker down. Trust, even of one's own race, is lower. Altruism and community cooperation, rarer. Friends, fewer. End quote. Putnam goes on to describe how a society with mass immigration can overcome these problems over time through cultural assimilation and reconstruction of what he calls a social identity. In other words, synthesis of a new common culture. Part 2. Critical Errors in the context of the more thorough understanding of what is meant by the word culture that I presented in part one, let's evaluate the New Zealand shooter's rationalization for mass homicide. Politically, the shooter describes himself as an eco-fascist, whose views are most closely aligned with the late Sir Oswald Mosley, a British politician and leader of the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s. He backs up his love of authoritarianism by praising China as the nation with the closest political and social values to my own. From his writing, he appears to be not so much a white supremacist as an ethnic separatist, the distinction being that ethnic separatists do not necessarily believe that races are inferior or superior to one another, but that they should remain separate from one another culturally and geographically. Despite reports in the media to the contrary, his actions were not inspired by Candace Owens, a black conservative commentator. His reference to her in his manifesto was clearly intended as a sarcastic jab, and was followed by the mocking admission that, quote, Spyro the Dragon 3 taught me ethno-nationalism, Fortnite trained me to be a killer and to floss on the corpses of my enemies, end quote. The shooter's basic argument goes something like this. Western nations are under attack from Islamic invaders, who are implementing a long-term plan to effectuate genocide of white people and to replace Western culture with an Islamic one. Because Western governments are not defending societies adequately, he feels justified in using violence against people he views as aggressors. He believes that eventually his viewpoint will be vindicated, and on that day, he will be released from prison and lauded for being one of the first people to take violent action against an enemy of the state. One of the dangers of the shooter's treaties is that he offers evidence to support some of his assertions, thus providing a veneer of legitimacy that may seduce fringe elements of society into following in his footsteps unless someone helps to adequately equip them with counterarguments. Fear of this 
fuels my motivation to write about such a gruesome event. The shooter's yearning for ethno-nationalism can be seen as a natural response to a perceived existential threat from an outside culture when viewed in the context of two critical errors. One, inextricably linking race with culture, and two, failing to identify those fundamental characteristics of Western society that are actually worth defending. Let's unravel those two errors. Conflating race with culture. The myth that race and culture are inherently bound to each other is common, but it is straightforward to dispel. Unless you're a genetic reductionist, it is easy to see that sharing basic philosophic principles and cooperative strategies does not require that your skin contain a certain amount of melanin, or that other physical attributes fit any particular set of parameters. Ending the analysis here, however, is incomplete because it fails to address the reason why ethno-nationalists repeatedly link race with culture, which is unexamined empiricism. In fact, for most of human history, viewing race and culture as synonymous made a certain amount of sense. Cultures evolved from groups of people living in proximity to one another, which also meant breeding with one another. A common culture was typically coincident with a shared environment and shared genetic material. As it turns out, in a Venn diagram of race and culture, there is an uncanny amount of overlap. Throw a dart at a map of the globe and try not to hit any water? With few exceptions, and those mostly in the West, you'll likely land on a country with very little racial diversity. Note that this is not the same as ethnic diversity, which is typically approximated by measuring linguistic or religious differences. Indeed, among genetically similar groups, there are often many disparate cultures. But the reverse is rarely true. Throughout history, and even still today, most cultures are racially homogenous, including the shooter's beloved People's Republic of China. Heritability of personality traits aside, this correlation between race and culture is primarily an accident of evolutionary circumstances, not a law of nature. Ethno-nationalists tend to miss this nuance. To the shooter, an attack on Western culture is synonymous with an attack on white people. Diversity zealots tend to ignore the correlation altogether, which makes them look awfully suspicious in the eyes of the ethno-nationalists. It's important to simultaneously recognize both. Culture and race are not the same thing, but when evaluating demographic data, one must remain aware of the close association between them, so as not to assume racism is the primary motivating factor behind every conflict. As is often the case, the truth is uncomfortably messy. The Value of Western Culture Let's take a look at the shooter's second major error. Before you can claim to be a defender of Western culture and Western civilization, you must accurately identify the essential characteristics that make the West worth defending in the first place. If culture is a loose societal agreement on basic philosophic premises and cooperative strategies, which part of that agreement makes the West uniquely valuable? It's certainly not our manners that matter most. The same could be said for our aesthetic values. If there is an attack on Western culture, then our aesthetic values may be targets, but we wouldn't classify them as primary targets. 
We don't really need to focus on saving the Beatles, Pizza, and Die Hard as much as we need to save a political and cultural structure based on the philosophical products of the Enlightenment. Historically, these have been on display more clearly in the United States than anywhere else. The United States is widely regarded as the archetype of modern Western civilization, and for good reason. The founding of America represented a fundamental advancement in both the political and cultural relationships between individuals and the state. First and foremost, it's the ethical foundation of America that must be saved. Some would argue that the essential characteristic of America's moral foundation is not Enlightenment values, but Christianity. They are wrong. Christianity has existed for 2,000 years. And even in recent history, there has been no shortage of nations that tout their Christian beliefs while embodying varying degrees of authoritarianism, whether through direct dictators and monarchs, or under the more modern socialist cloak of empathy for the downtrodden. Without the Enlightenment, Christianity directly contributes very little to the ethical questions of individual rights and relation of citizens to the state. What makes America unique or at least did, is not devotion to Christianity, or European aesthetics, or Caucasian genes, but a moral rejection of the state as dominant over the individual. Thanks to Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke, who rejected age-old precepts like the divine right of kings, at America's inception, individual rights were not viewed as some lucky gift granted by benevolent rulers, but as qualities more fundamental to human existence and antecedent to the formation of a state. Individual rights, as Jefferson wrote, were unalienable and endowed by our creator, not nice-to-have gifts from political leaders elected by a mob. Of course, there were huge contradictions in the application of this philosophy at the time, codified slavery and the lack of women's suffrage being two obvious examples. But those flaws were not unique to America or to the West. Slavery and male-dominated political structures were endemic to human society all across the globe for as long as there had been such a thing as a human society. What was unique to America, however, was the idea that each individual member of society had intrinsic rights that transcended the plans and desires of kings, senators, presidents of banks, and even mobs of voters. In terms of founding a nation, that idea was brand new, and the consequence of adopting it, even sloppily and inconsistently, was an explosion of human flourishing the likes of which our species has never before experienced. The moral perspective of individuals as sovereign agents is the most precious, and it seems fragile, element upon which modern Western civilization is built. Philosophically, the opposite of this individualist outlook is collectivism, the idea that the group or community or race or class has the right to use force against any individual who stands in the way of what the group deems desirable, almost always articulated by group leaders naively presumed to be completely benevolent. Politically, collectivism can manifest as both communism and fascism. Under communism, Absolute power over individuals is granted to a small cadre of leaders purportedly representing a particular class, typically the working class. Under fascism, absolute power over individuals is granted to a single leader 
purportedly representing a particular race, ethnicity, or nation. Communism and fascism are not opposites, they are two sides of the same worthless coin. Fundamentally, neither is compatible with the values of the West. No one who ascribes to any form of collectivism can legitimately call himself a defender of Western civilization. Part 3. An Existential Threat? These two critical errors, identified in Part 2, among others, helped the Christchurch shooter rationalize a truly heinous response to what he perceived as an existential threat from an outside culture. Now it's time to ask a very uncomfortable question. Is there an existential threat to Western civilization rooted in Muslim immigration? Or was the shooter completely wrong about that as well? And if there is a threat, what is the nature of it? Before examining this, it is important to recognize that major threats to Western civilization exist from within the West itself. Western intellectuals have long since forsaken the Enlightenment, and have been vulnerable to and even accomplices of efforts to undermine its values. In the 1980s, Soviet KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov explained in detail his scheme for the KGB process of ideological subversion and takeover of target societies in the West. He outlined the four stages of attack, demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization, and boasted that the Soviets didn't have to actually do much, but could get American intellectuals to implement the KGB's subversive tactics for them. You cannot subvert an enemy who does not want to be subverted, he quipped. The work of so-called journalists like New York Times reporter Walter Durante, who earned a Pulitzer for spreading Soviet disinformation, comes to mind. Of course, the Soviet Union has since died, but the effectiveness of Bezmenov's techniques was only possible because American intellectuals were asleep at the wheel or maybe even intentionally driving us all into a ditch. Although no longer explicitly pro-communist, Marxist ideology is alive and well in America. Decades ago, Bezmenov even spoke about, quote, social justice introduced by Marxist-Leninism. Sound familiar? According to professors Joshua Dunn of the University of Colorado and John Shields of Claremont McKenna College, as of 2016, 18% of social scientists in the United States self-identify as Marxists. Compare that to the number who self-identify as conservative, 5%, and the prevalence of anti-enlightenment ideologues among American intellectuals becomes painfully obvious. Today, Few intellectuals talk about Marxism explicitly, although many do, especially on college campuses. Instead, Marxist collectivist ideology has been rebranded as intersectionality, the core belief system behind the modern social justice movement. You may not have heard of intersectionality, but you're nevertheless surrounded by its ideological byproducts. It's why razor companies make ads about toxic masculinity. 
It's why children's Halloween costumes are now subject to approval from self-appointed cultural appropriation police. It's why late-night comedy sucks. It's why Twitter bans everyone from radical feminist Megan Murphy to gay provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. It's why a 52-year-old male can identify as a 6-year-old girl and stroll into the same bathroom that your daughter uses. It's the kernel upon which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's politician.exe software runs. There is nothing noble about intersectionality. It's the same tired old collectivism that fueled 20th century communism around the world and left almost 100 million people dead, their starved and murdered bodies gleefully strewn across Eastern Europe and Asia by the most woke Marxists on the planet. Intersectionality simply tweaked where to draw the boundaries between groups. Instead of using socioeconomic class like the classical Marxists, Intersectionality's primary method of categorizing people utilizes a hierarchy of perceived oppression based on attributes such as genetics, ethnicity, medical status, mental health, and sexual proclivities. It seeks to turn Western culture into a frenzied race to see who can get away with advertising, or manufacturing, her victimhood status most loudly, which is rewarded, not coincidentally, with unchecked political power. They call this progressivism. The sad truth is that Western culture has rotted from within. The Bill of Rights was an attempt to codify the Enlightenment idea of individual autonomy over group allegiance, and support for these rights can be a good litmus test for the health of Western culture. Take a look around you at the rhetoric coming from politicians, the media, celebrities, universities, and almost anyone with any significant cultural influence. For the most part, individual rights aren't even considered. Worse, the word right has been redefined to mean stuff we can force other people to give you. Not only are services like healthcare, education, and welfare, both corporate and personal, not rights, they are antithetical to the entire concept of individual rights because they are granted to one person by violating the rights of another. Few people seem to care about this anymore, neither on the left nor the right. As author Michael Malice once noted, conservatism is progressivism, driving the speed limit. Even the sanctity of freedom of speech is eroding. According to a 2017 Gallup Knight Foundation survey, Quote, college students prioritize promoting an inclusive society that is welcoming of diverse groups over one that protects citizens' free speech rights, 53% to 46%. End quote. An inclusive society sounds nice, I guess, but it's not worth forfeiting the very soul of Western civilization. Without a principled defense of individualism over collectivism, the West has no chance of defending itself against toxic cultures. And yes, there are toxic cultures, or at least cultures that embody philosophic principles that are toxic to Enlightenment values. Any belief system that subordinates the individual to the state, group, or some other authority is fundamentally toxic to Western civilization. Islam is one such belief system. 
This doesn't mean that Muslims are evil people or that they should be treated differently from Christians or atheists, or murdered in cold blood, obviously. Marxism is incredibly toxic to the West, too, but that doesn't mean you should run around shooting sociology professors. People are not their belief systems. To true defenders of Western civilization, people are individuals rather than fungible members of a collective. So let's return to the Christchurch shooter's mindset. Although his manifesto contains a barrage of accusations and slurs against Muslim immigrants, his primary contention is based on an assumption that is probably true. The population of many European nations will very likely be majority Muslim within the next few decades. To him, this takeover of the West is an attack by an enemy with whom his society is at war, whether or not everyone else realizes it. After opening with the Dylan Thomas poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, the first three sentences of the shooter's manifesto are, It's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates. If there's one thing I want you to remember from these writings, he continues, it's that the birth rates must change. Even if we were to deport all non-Europeans from our lands tomorrow, the European people will still be spiraling into decay and eventual death. He goes on to cite data to buttress this assertion. Some of that data is solid, assuming we can trust Wikipedia, while some of it is unsubstantiated and exaggerated. I'll only use accurate data below. Nevertheless, the narrative is generally true, which is, in order for a population to sustain itself, there must be a minimum birth rate of about 2.1 children per family. The birth rate, or total fertility rate, TFR, in the European Union was a paltry 1.58 in 2015. It's particularly low in countries like Spain, 1.33, and Italy, 1.35. But even in countries like France, where the rate is higher, 1.96, it's still well below the minimum replacement rate. Despite this, the population of France and other European nations is growing and projected to continue to grow. This is largely due to immigration, much of which comes in the form of immigration from Muslim-majority countries, and the presumed higher TFR of those immigrants. Think of it this way. France's 1.96 TFR is a combined measurement of the TFR of native French and the TFR of the recent immigrant population in France. Conveniently, France does not collect statistics that would allow us to accurately determine how much of that 1.96 TFR is coming from native French versus immigrant French. Assuming that some of that cultural behavior crosses the border into France along with the immigrants, we can pretty confidently guess that the TFR of native French is below 1.96, while the TFR of French Muslim immigrants is higher than 1.96. All this adds up to the conclusion that much of Europe is in the midst of a potentially massive demographic shift. Most intellectuals and media pundits condescendingly dismiss this idea as a crazy conspiracy theory that only white nationalists believe. Their intention is to make the topic so radioactive that normal people are afraid to have a real discussion about it, 
for fear that they'll be labeled racist. But while it's true that race-obsessed fascists like the Christchurch shooter disseminate exaggerated or even fictitious numbers in an attempt to generate hysteria over alleged white genocide, it's also true that looking at widely available and uncontested statistics like TFR and immigration trends makes the prospect of Muslim-dominated portions of Europe look less like a conspiracy theory and more like an eventuality. It's clear that almost no one seriously believes there aren't at least some significant changes happening in Europe due to Muslim immigration. Even Germany's pro-immigration leader, Angela Merkel, knows it. She's known it for years. Our country is going to carry on changing, she told the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung Daily almost 10 years ago. Quote, For years we've been deceiving ourselves about this. Mosques, for example, are going to be a more prominent part of our cities than they were before. End quote. Average Europeans know it too. In a 2017 Chatham House survey, hardly a right-wing institution, 55% of Europeans agreed with the statement, all further migration from mainly Muslim countries should be stopped. It's not just something only xenophobic white folks believe either. Muslim leaders know and openly talk about demographics. There are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest, Muammar Gaddafi boasted back in 2006. Quote, We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50-plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. End quote. A quick DuckDuckGo search will reveal that many modern-day imams are just as optimistic about this as was Gaddafi. You might feel pressure to shy away from a discussion like this for fear of being labeled racist, which would be a healthy reaction if this were about race. But it's not. There is a legitimate concern that transcends race and needs to be discussed out in the open instead of being left to fester in the dark corners of the internet until it erupts in the form of another live-streamed mass murder. That concern is the impact of Islamic ideology on an Enlightenment-based culture and political structure. On average, one can reasonably assume that native French people are more likely to push the culture and politics of France in the direction of traditional Frenchness, which presumably includes some respect for both individual liberty and moldy cheese. On the other hand, Muslim immigrants, on average, can be reasonably expected to push the culture and politics in a direction that aligns better with Muslim values. The same is true for all Western nations. Of course, just as being a non-Muslim doesn't guarantee that a person will vote to uphold Western values, such as the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, etc. Practicing Islam is no guarantee that a person will vote to destroy those values either. Except that in nations with a majority Muslim population, they certainly tend to do just that. And an anti-individualist voting pattern is exactly what one would expect from adherence to a religion that doubles as a political ideology with strictly enforced behavioral and social codes especially in a society that no longer defends, respects, or teaches the principle of individualism. 
It's not Muslim immigrants per se that threaten Western civilization. It's the ideology of Islam and the cultural and political impact of adherence to it. There are plenty of non-violent, healthy ways for an Enlightenment-based culture to address this concern, but they all start with having a rational conversation about it. Because the shooter is a collectivist who lacks an understanding of the philosophic foundations of the West, this option was lost on him. The fact that the West is not having a serious conversation about the fundamental incompatibility between Islam and the Enlightenment only serves to elevate the paranoia of potential ethno-nationalists. Indeed, Western institutions' willful blindness to any problems related to Muslim immigration helped convince the Christchurch shooter that an international conspiracy to wage a war against the West had secretly begun. His manifesto includes more than a page of links to Wikipedia entries describing various cases of child rape and sexual abuse crimes perpetuated by groups of Muslim immigrants, beginning with the infamous decades-long Rotherham atrocity. He presents these anecdotes as if they are equivalent to statistical realities, and concludes that they represent a dangerous pattern of Muslim aggression. Ordinarily, this would be an easy claim to prove or disprove, would simply examine religious or birth origin data of convicted criminals, controlling for factors like sex, age, socioeconomic status, etc. But we can't do that, because European governments have refused to collect this data. Or in some cases, they were collecting it previously, but stopped years ago when it began to suggest politically incorrect trends. This lack of transparency makes it look like European governments and accomplices in the media are hiding something, which lends more credibility to the shooter's assumptions about crime rates than it does to those who'd like to use data to disprove him. Instead of collecting actual data and then having real discussions with concerned Europeans about Muslim immigration, political and intellectual leaders simply yell, xenophobe or racist. But name-calling is only a temporary scare tactic that loses potency the more it's used, and it accelerates radicalization among those most vulnerable to ethno-nationalist ideology. Western civilization, embodied by the idea that the rights of each and every individual override the whims, desires, or needs of the group, is in fact at risk of vanishing. The primary reason for this is that the very people our society relies on to protect it professors, journalists, politicians, and other intellectuals, spend most of their energy actively poisoning it. To add insult to injury, the world's fastest-growing religion is one that doesn't exactly look like it's on the verge of its own reformation and subsequent cultural enlightenment. Today's Islam has a near-unwavering track record of rejecting the separation between church and state, and instead offers its adherents an amalgamated set of political and religious beliefs. This results in the pseudo-theocracies with barbaric laws we see today, like Brunei and its recent rule that punishes gay and adulterous sex by stoning offenders to death. An influx of immigrants with this rival political religious ideology leaves many natives with a vague sense of dread that something terrible is about to happen. But thanks to the West's philosophic suicide, most of them have no idea what that might be, or what they should or shouldn't do about it.
the dangerously unstable among them have only a collectivist understanding of the world, leading them to choose the most primitive sort of group with which to identify. Race. Once someone's world has devolved into a battle between tribes, anything can feel justified. Even murder. There is something worth fighting for in the West, but it's not whiteness, Catholicism, or German food. Western values rooted in individual autonomy aren't just different from Marxist values, or fascist values, or Islamic values. They're better. Joining the battle to save Western civilization means rediscovering this, understanding it, and not being too ashamed or afraid to say it. It's not a battle to be fought with guns, but with words. Preventing future violence requires unfettered discourse, not censorship, silence, or lazy cliches. To be clear, the war isn't between Islam and Christianity, or between the left and the right, or between Democrats and Republicans. It's a war between individualists and collectivists. And it's time for you to pick a side.